Welcome to episode 83 of Music Nerds Unite. This is Scott Floman again with my brother Keith Floman and our buddy Larry Waldman. In this episode, we'll be doing a draft of the best songs of 1981. And like in our prior recent episodes, we'll each draft five songs apiece via a snake draft. The first pick for 1981 goes to Keith, followed by me and then Larry. And we'll reverse the order for round two and so on for five rounds. And we'll have links to associated playlists in the notes of the episode. The intro song from 1981 was picked by Keith, of course. You probably figured that out already. So he's going to say a few words about it. Although I did have it on my list. That's one for my fans out there. You know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, Flipper with Sex Bomb, baby. Yeah! Flipper was relatively short-lived, but short and long-lived. They... Ultimately, were a pretty big influence to our man Kurt and Nirvana. Picture of Kurt in the In Utero album wearing a flipper shirt that I think he made. But yeah, Kurt was a fan, Nirvana was a fan, and the song is just a raucous amalgamation of punk, jazz, just free form. It's to me, it's, it really is a, a like a cool song to listen to and, and it's it's got that you know that build there's a lot of layers to it there's good musicianship i really like the song even though it's sort of out there and you know obviously the lyrics are a little um sex bomb baby that's about it <laughs> which i'm pretty that's, sure is the name of their compilation album it's just, I mean, it's just yeah sex bomb baby. baby sex bomb baby yeah i'm all in on flipper no, that's a great pick. I, I'm telling you, I did have it started. I actually didn't pick timing yet because there's other bands. If we got to honorable mentions, I was definitely going to mention it. It's a great song. Definitely early, maybe early noise rock, but proto-hardcore. You can definitely see some grunge influence. There's a lot of stuff going on in this band. This is an amalgamation of various genres. Like you said, it's completely obnoxious, and I know that some of our listeners will absolutely hate it. but there is something about it that's kind of endearing right the combination is very odd you have shouted scratchy punk vocals these big beats kind of muddy guitar sound definitely you could hear the grunge influence and then you have this weird kind of sax squawking in the background (laughs) that doesn't really fit and that's what makes the combination kind of unique and so there's nothing quite like it and like you said there was an influence there on punk grunge noise rock bands if not for Kurt Cobain extolling this band maybe they would have been more forgotten than they are today absolutely a Kurt Cobain favorite and I can understand why it would be a song that Keith would pick I don't, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how that last one plays yeah. out was that, was that an insult was that a compliment maybe both a little both <laughs> a little, little, little column bay the fugs have competition. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so before we start the song draft, do you guys have any general thoughts on 1981? I have a couple. So, one, I feel like 80 was still sort of like the 70s, like or like the, the latter half of the 70s, right? You still had punk, starting to get some new wave, but it still kind of feels like of a piece. I feel like 1981 is when things kind of go sideways. You've got all these bands that have been playing for 10, 15 years, you know, great bands of the 60s and 70s. All of a sudden, they get to 1981, and some producer comes up to them and is like, okay, so look, um, you need to tease your hair, you need to wear these crazy outfits, and you need to make a mini movie about your song. And they're like, what? 
right? Like the whole vibe of music starts to change in 81. There's a lot more about appearance. There's a lot more about making an impression. Like it's not just about the music anymore. It becomes much more of a holistic lifestyle now. You know, some bands did it. Some artists, like, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about David Bowie, who's a chameleon. He embraced it. Some bands kind of like awkwardly go into this. Like one of the songs from one of the bands that I'm referring to, the video for a song that may or may not get picked up, it's almost embarrassing. Like it's just them just prancing around on a stage showing their like sweat stains, right? It's like, it's kind of gross. And are, are you saying that video killed the radio star? A little bit I am. Yeah. Didn't we play that already? Yeah, I was 79. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but I, I do think is eighty one is when things really started to like play out like that. And you're starting to see those kind of bands are really fading away and or at least going on hiatus a little bit. And now you're seeing this is when New Wave is really coming about. Disco is morphing. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Now, for eighty one specifically, I, I'm of two minds. There's a lot of great music in eighty one. There's also a lot of songs that I feel like I should pick, but I just don't have, like, passion about it. I'm not, like, super into it. When you look at some of the lists of greatest songs of 81, like, I would say half of them in the top 10, I'm like, I'm not picking that song. Like, maybe, I don't know, maybe one of you guys will, but I don't think any of us are going to pick them. So I'm, I'm kind of intrigued as to how this goes. Like, there's definitely a lot of great music for us to pick. I could do 15 songs just from, still from hardcore and punk and new wave and be very happy. But they're definitely songs that I just, I don't know. There's not a ton of songs other than the one that I know Keith's about to pick where I'm like, that has to be picked. There's at least two. On paper, 81 is a fucking dumpster fire. Way to promote the episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please keep listening for the next hour and a half of this podcast. <laughs> that said, I really, really got to like 81. Yeah. So he takes back the dumpster fire. Comment. It's not at, at, at the top, you, you know, you don't have... You don't have the same sort of gravitas of some of the you know songs of, of, of early years, but but there's a lot happening in '81, and a lot happening in in genres that sort of you know I I like better than you know some of the, um, so so again the, the the underground is not overrated at this point. The underground is starting to flourish and splinter. And it's, you know, there's a beauty to that. There's just a lot of good shit. I think 1981 had a lot of really good and even great songs, but very few all-time great songs. When I think of this year, I mostly think of AOR, hard rock and heavy metal, and also new wave and post-punk. Also, we mentioned previously that the 80s were maybe the decade for one-hit wonders. But I'm mostly going to avoid one-hit wonders since we had a whole episode devoted to them, episode 65. One thing that was striking to me about how we did this with 1980 following our 60s episodes was that in 1980, we were mostly talking about the next generation, a younger generation of artists. But another thing that's interesting about 1981 to me is that by my count, there are at least five artists that originated from way back in the 60s who have draft-worthy songs in 1981. We'll have to discuss this further at some point, though I just kind of named one of them. All right, Keith, you're up. Time for the first pick. The best song of 1981. Well, let's just kickstart this jam.
There we are. I mean, from 79 to 81, joy, joy, joy. That is the new order, sort of the in-between in, in a way, right? It was written as a Joy Division song before Ian died and recorded in 81 as New Order. It's not a Joy Division song and it's not really a New Order song, right? It's a song that sort of falls in between. It's it's hinting at where Joy Division was going. It's hinting at where New Order is going, but New Order you know, sort of evolves relatively quickly from there. But it's just a just a brilliant song. I'll quote drummer Steven Morris, since he says it pretty well. In my opinion, it had a hit single pressed through it. It was probably the only Joy Division song that I played repeatedly on cassette. I liked it that much. It was something uplifting. It felt like the start of something new or different. Basically, that's really what it ultimately was, right? I mean, there's a live version with Ian on it, recorded as the first really New Order song. And um, the way there's a sadness, right? Because to me, as much as I love New Order, they clearly transitioned into something different as as New Order, um, which is such a great name for a band that, that's coming out of something dramatic. Anyway, it's a spectacular song. Um, that was the Substance version, which was released in 87. I think they recorded the song like five different times because they really liked it too. Yeah, it's a treasure of a song. Arguably top two of New Order for me, possibly one. So, love it. Class of 81. I didn't think there was any doubt that this would be the song that you would have picked. There's so many things that are fascinating about this song to me. One, it is a Joy Division song, right? It started out, they recorded it as a Joy Division song, and they recorded it with the sense that this was going to be a new start for them. They were going to be doing something different, and they also recorded it, and it is uplifting, to try and shake Ian Curtis out of his depression. Like, they, they were trying to do something, unfortunately, as we all know. It didn't work out. But as you said, Keith, you can see how Joy Division was evolving, and we've talked a lot about that, how you can... If you're as much of fanboys as we are about both bands, you can definitely trace how they were evolving. And this this is the perfect transition song for them. You definitely see them morphing here, right? Going away from post-punk into more new wave or really more new order because I always think of them as being sort of their own their own genre. So great pick. Can't think of anything else that I want to kick off this episode with. Unless, of course, it would be Sex Bomb. It is more of a guitar-driven song than typical New Order, which ties it more back to Joy Division, and that's one reason why it's my favorite New Order song. So I think we will be seeing more of New Order, and if you're going to start on New Order, that Substance compilation is a great starting point. I'm pretty sure that's the first New Order CD I bought. It's the first one I bought, and nine out of ten times, if I'm listening to New Order, that's what I'm listening to. Yeah, same. On to pick number two. You probably don't even hear it when it happens. <laughs> All right. So I knew that this was going to be the pick. I did advocate for it to be the last pick of the draft. I even was going to say that we have an informal pact to allow Scott to make this his last pick, but so be it. I like, I like that idea. There's a beauty to that. But yeah. I figured it was kind of like having Freebird as the last pick. It's too big a song for an outro. Yeah, but there's a reason for it. Scott, you're not giving your usual, like, hint as to what the songs are. I already gave the hint. It's not like your usual hints. Your usual hints are a little more beat you over the head with it, but I'll take it. It's all right. 
I will say, though, as I was picking up Jamie, my 19-year-old daughter, from work, and I was putting on my 1981 playlist, randomly, this song came on. We were both singing about as loud as we could, so it was pretty good. That kind of song transcends generations. Totally. That was Don't Stop Believing by Journey, followed by the intro to Stone in Love, because whenever I hear the song end in my head, I always hear the great intro riffs of Stone in Love. The next song on the album, Escape, which was their biggest and best album, with other hits like Who's Crying Now and Open Arms. AOR was huge in the early 80s with bands like Journey, Styx, Farner, Jefferson Starship, Loverboy, and Ario Speedwagon all over the U.S. airwaves. Critics may not have approved, but the fans understood. And remember, some of the musicians in this band had serious pedigrees going back to Santana, who were also going AOR in 1981 with their Russ Ballard-written hit winning. And, of course, the arrival of Steve Perry on Journey's fourth album in 1978, The Very Good Infinity, took them into a more mainstream direction and with its spectacular success. This is one of those songs that makes you feel good, as you sing along to it and maybe air guitar or even air piano along to it as well. Perry is such a great singer with that high-pitched voice. What a performance. And of course, as Keith pointed out previously in our 80-song tournament, the final scene of The Sopranos took the song to another level entirely, culturally speaking. And the quote when I introduced this song was from The Sopranos. Which is why I suggested that we saved it for last, right? And then we can just fade it to black. Fade it to black, yeah. It deserves to be a high pick as far as what the song means to 1981, so I'm cool with it. That's fine. I'm okay with that. Probably more in retrospect. You can't separate it from everything around it, so like it took on a new life in the the 2000s. You know, 20, however many years later, 20 plus years later, that didn't exist around it before. Yeah. It became a heavier song. There was just more depth to it <laughs> after, you know, it just was surrounded by the end of the Sopranos and 
that's what it is now. But for the 20 years leading up to that, it, it wasn't that. It was still a hugely be- popular classic song. It just made be like you said, it didn't have the weight of that association. I think it first started with Glee, actually, where they did like a version of it because that was a hugely popular show in the mid 2000s. And then The Sopranos. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah. And, you know, other than that, it would always be like, you know, you're at a party. Someone puts on a mix and this comes on. And of course, everyone knows every lyric. Right. But other than that, it definitely had to get back into the pop culture zeitgeist. It was gone for a while. So glad that it got brought back. Journey's definitely an underrated band. I think you're right, Scott. I think they get a little lumped in with a whole bunch of kind of like interchangeable, forgettable mid-80s soft rock bands, right? But they could go. And to be honest, Scott, I had lost the Stone and Love connection for a very long time, probably until five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. That is a killer intro riff, though, right? Yeah. Hey, very, it's very good. cool, like, summertime song, right? I do remember. It's funny you say that. So I totally lost that connection, too. But what I did have is, I don't know if you guys remember, it must have been in 1988 or 89, I think it was 88, so I was a freshman in college, Journey released their greatest hits album, and for whatever reason, there must have been like 10 different rooms that got it, so Journey was playing all the time, and on greatest hits, Don't Stop Believing went into Wheel in the Sky, so that's how I, like the sequencing is how I remember it, is into Wheel in the Sky. Yeah, 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 that was a massive album, that greatest hits album, 88 I think, yeah. Yeah, But it was a, I mean, you know, if you take greatest hits of Journey, there's no bad song on that album. And we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up again the fact that we saw Journey during Game 6 of the 1986 Mets versus the Red Sox. And Don't Stop Believing became sort of the mantra of Mookie and Ray and Gary and Boyce. Yeah, so we got home from the concert, like right when it happened. Our good friends we went to the concert with had tickets to Game 7. And oh. they were a huge Mets fan, but one of them was. And we were like, dude, it's over, man. Sorry. And he's like, no, no. And sure enough. Gotta believe. Yep. And then, like, I just remember us piling on to each other when, when Ray and I crossed home plate and the rest is history. Great memory. That is awesome. All right. It's time to pick number three. Larry, you're up. All right. Get, get, your, head drum. get your head drums ready, Scott. Get your head Scott, drums I'm picking an air drum song. There's two of them. But I think I know which one. Which one? Don't say it. All right. So for this one. By the way, I got it. Did you see? Yeah, I know. Yeah, so. Once again, Larry (laughs) Once again, Larry proving his predictability. (laughs) You know what? Fuck you. Now I'm going to pick the other side.
can't play that song without playing the middle part where you get to experience Neil Peart's genius. So that was Tom Sawyer by Rush. Moving Pictures is probably their best known, if not their best album. I mean, the first side is all killer. Great song after great song. And this is really, I think, most people's introduction to Rush. I'm pretty sure this is probably the first song I ever heard from Rush or the first song that I remember hearing and going, oh my God, that's fucking amazing. What's the name of that band? Oh, Rush. I'm going to learn more about them. I'm going to find out. I want to get one of their albums. Just absolute killer. You know, it speaks to you. The lyrics are kind of edgy. At least they were edgy for, you know, an 11-year-old at the time and trying to figure out what's going on. And then the musicianship. I mean, I feel like this, you hear them at their absolute best. That drum in the middle is just... Oh, yeah. It's one of the all-time air drum parts, for sure. Totally. And Moving Pictures, I think, probably is their best album. Side one, like Side one of Permanent Waves, it's just incredible. Side two is very good as well. Kind of gets overshadowed by side one. I think Moving Pictures is also the album where they really graduated to a headlining arena band. It took them to the next level commercially. It had that perfect mix of, yeah, they had synthesizers, but they were tastefully employed and they really added to the ambience of their songs. They were still progressive, but they were also AOR. It was kind of radio friendly, yet it had that incredible musicianship as well. So it was for everybody, basically, whereas early Rush was for the prog nerds. Then they got too much into the synth. This was that perfect medium of the different sides of Rush. And Tom Sawyer's a great example of that because there are a lot of synths, but it doesn't feel like a new wave or super synth-heavy song. It's definitely heavier. It's a rock, it's a rock song with synth. Yeah. It's a rock song with synths, yeah. yeah. And I would say that Moving Pictures is a prog album, but almost like it's edited to just the best parts, right? I mean, Camera Eye is more proggy. YYZ is a little more proggy, but everything fits the right way. It's they have singles. They have singles in that. Yeah, that's a great yeah. I mean, Red Barchette is an amazing song. And make a case for Limelight just as easily as Tom Sawyer. One of the great opening riffs. Alex Lifeson's greatest guitar solo. Amazing lyrics. I can't pretend the stranger is a long-awaited friend. That is Neil Peart in a nutshell, how yep. he dealt with singing. I could have easily picked Limelight. Could have picked Red Barchette, too. I mean, it's great, but... Tom Sawyer is probably the signature song. It's the one that's most known. It's the right song to pick from this album. But again, if you haven't listened or if that intrigues you, the whole album is phenomenal. Yeah. And side A, it's like it's one of those perfect album sides, even though nobody has that anymore. Back when you had album sides, it was Back definitely among the best album sides of the decade. And Tom Sawyer, what we said about Motorhead and Ace of Spades is true of Tom Sawyer. It's the song that transcends Rush. You don't have to be into Rush, but you know Tom Sawyer. And Neil Peart himself felt that all their prior albums were basically the training ground that led to moving pictures. He felt that was them at their peak. I still have a strong spot for 2112, but I, I see the, the allure. <laughs> I mean, that's their best prog album. It's a different rush. They're both amazing. All right. So since I'm so predictable, what am I going to pick next? You can't I touch could... this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you don't know what I'm going to pick next. So how about a hint? It's also proggy. Proggy in what way? Let me put it this way. If I played the song for you and we weren't doing a 1981 podcast, you guys would probably think it came from like 67 through 69. The Strangler's Golden Brown. Give <laughs> you a great hint. But it's not, it's not proggy to me. It's 60s-y. It's trippy. It's psychedelic. It's, it's, trippy, not psychedelic. it's not proggy. It's psychedelic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so terrible hint. Harpsichord, baby. Harpsichord. Fine. 
My hint that it was in 67 to 69 is better than Proggy. I agree. Yeah. golden brown by the stranglers what i find so compelling about this song is as i was saying in the hint it sounds like it comes from the 60s that's a harpsichord that you're hearing i think it's put through a moog and it has that very psychedelic it could be a beatles song yeah like a 67 era beatles it's like a 67 era beatles song it's a psychedelic song and it comes from a punk band that in the 70s was considered kind of like one of the more crude misanthropic punk bands like it's such a change and such a different type of sound the first few times that i heard this i actually didn't process that it was the same like i saw okay golden brown stranglers i'm like stranglers wait like the punk band stranglers no it's got to be a different band. it's the same band I, I i was like kind of floored that it was the same band because it is so different i literally thought something was wrong like i'm like there's no possible way this song came out in the 60s so obviously i listened to it a bunch liked it did some research, found out that it was, and it was part of their evolution. I mean, they did kind of evolve from a punk band to more of a new wave, more of like a pop band. Like many punk bands, as they got older, they became more fun. They learned how to play their instruments a little bit better. They got interested in different influences, and this is what came up. And it's such an unusual song, I couldn't help but not play it. So, a little punk, but maybe a little different version. Of Not it. punk at all. I love this song. I love songs that sort of have an understated brilliance, and this is one of those songs that has that. It doesn't necessarily hit you the first time you hear it. It doesn't necessarily hit you the second time you hear it. But on repeat listens, and you have to give it repeat listens, but it just there's a reward there that this is yeah, it's something... A- Beautiful there. Such a great song. I mean, it almost sounds like a Renaissance or, or like Baroque song. Baroque is probably a better way to phrase it than Renaissance, like, or like a waltz. So, and also apparently it's, depending on your point of view or the day of the week, it's either about a girl or heroin or both. Heroin. Yeah, maybe Amazing how many great songs are written about both girls and heroin. Lots, <laughs> lots of songs, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think it's a great song. It has a haunting, atmospheric, beautiful vibe to it. Like you said, Keith, it's a subtle song, and it has a certain magic to it that gets better the more you listen to it. God, it's what Cure song has a similar brilliance to it? Catch? Bingo. 
we know each other too well. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's that, you know, it's I wonder, that, I wonder why that is. It's that really, it's that under, like that subtle brilliance that just comes to the fore, you know. Yeah. And we talked about our love of harpsichord. That's very prominent here, but there's also shimmering guitar. And the guitar is also very understated too, right? It's like, it's like classical guitar. Like, and I don't mean classic rock guitar. I mean classical guitar. It's just, that's what gets me every time. And, and this is a grower, but it gets me every time is you listen to it and it just sounds, it's like ethereal. It sounds like it's coming from yeah. something completely different from what you're used to when you hear Rock. So the BBC did a a poll of like listeners' favorite songs that never hit number one, that only peaked at number two, and this was one of the top five. And again, this is one of those songs that's well known and big in the UK, but basically yeah. unknown in the US. And there's yeah. another song in 1981, another very unpunk song by a punk band that I think Larry's going to draft as well. <laughs> we'll see. That was a great pick, man. Good job. It was on my board. All right. The guy I'm going to pick next was on my draft board in 1980, but I didn't quite get to it. His 1980 album was a classic with his biggest song and several other classics. But I actually think his 1981 album was even better. And this is my favorite solo song by him. Rock music may not be as popular commercially as it used to be. Hip hop, pop, and country seem to be the dominant genres today. But this next guy was right. You can kill rock and roll. was You Can't Kill Rock and Roll by Ozzy Osbourne, an epic anthemic power ballad that features one of Ozzy's very best vocal performances. When he sings Rock and Roll is My Religion, it's hard not to believe him. And the song features outstanding guitar playing from the legendary, but alas, soon-to-be-deceased Randy Rhodes, who would die in a plane crash on March 19, 1982. Those first two Ozzy solo albums with Randy were incredible, and Ozzy spent the rest of his career trying to live up to them. And in my opinion, despite subsequent successes, he never really did. Randy had a classical European style that was singularly his, 
And most people don't know it, but there was originally supposed to be a band called Blizzard of Oz, which in addition to Ozzy and Randy also included ex-Uri Heat drummer Lee Kerslake and former Rainbow bassist Bob Daisley, who actually wrote all the lyrics. But Ozzy had the name recognition, so he ended up receiving top billing. And the first two albums, which featured the Blizzard of Oz band, were released as solo albums. Though, as most of you already know, the first album was called Blizzard of Oz. There's something about this song. It just hits me hard. It has a great atmosphere, and Ozzy's vocals are very affecting. He really is an underrated singer. And Randy has multiple great guitar solos. Randy Rose is probably the most impressive new voice on lead guitar since Eddie Van Halen. So, I didn't necessarily have this on my list. I like the song. If I was picking, like, you know, early 80s Ozzy, I think you, you were kind of referencing it, too. I probably would have picked the 1980. But I agree. This is a great vocal by Ozzy, and it's an understated Randy song, which also, I think, goes to his virtuosity. He was a phenomenal player. Bragic, that we didn't get to see what he would have become. Because I do think Ozzy kind of, I, don't know, I feel like he meandered through the rest of the 80s and 90s after Randy was gone. It was like, it kind of felt like he was kind of phoning it in after that, right? Like, he just wasn't as into it anymore. Like, to me, a lot of the later Ozzy albums sounded like repeats. Like, they're kind of indistinguishable. After Diary of a Madman, that was kind of it for me. So I'm glad you're picking it. Like, I thought you might be going in a couple of different directions with this pick, Scott, but uh, I'm glad you did. I'm glad I hadn't thought this was going to make it on the list. It was sort of like in the, the back of my my starred songs for 81. Keith is probably a little less surprised. I think he knows my love of this song. This is by far my favorite Ozzy album. I love almost every song on the album, except maybe Little Dolls. I had Diary. I had it queued up. I probably would pick Flying High over You Can't Kill, maybe even over The Rainbow. I, even Sato. I love Sato. I love Tonight. Over the Mountain. I fucking love the album. But You Can't Kill Rock and was a great a great song. Diary just to me has more, a little bit more uniqueness. The other songs sort of go together, whereas Diary sort of is more standalone. Yeah. Um, it's more of a throwback to Sat, right? There's Sabbath elements, like the uh, theatrics that he brings into Diary are a little bit more unique, but also more of a Sabbath sound. But, uh, you know, I can't complain with, you can't kill Rockwell. Fucking years today. Yeah, it's a great album. I agree. Blizzard had his biggest songs, but I agree. Diary was his best album. And for the record, the song I wanted to pick for 1980 was not Crazy Train. That's a great song. It's obviously his signature song, but what song did I want to pick? Freebird. Mr. Crowley. Come on. That's awesome. <laughs> that was a terrible Mr. By the way, Mr. Mr. Crowley. Pretty fucked up dude. Yeah. Fucked up dude, but a pretty awesome song. Great song. <laughs> dude, yeah. I mean, if you're going to pick it, so you're gonna, Yeah, exactly. If you're going to pick a guy you want to do a song like that after, good call. Yeah. All right. Back to Keith, finally. I'm baffled. I'm, Wild I'm, card. No one, I'm, no one knows. What, not even Keith knows what he's going to pick next in the next. Usually he's not baffled until like the third or fourth round. He's already back. No, I'm, no, I'm, is, I'm, I, I, I didn't even pick it. I literally picked the clip during this episode for the song, and I'm baffled that you idiots didn't even have Oh. He's trying to reprove his ultimate fanboy credentials. I'm not super surprised that it I mean, I, I know it's going to get picked. Come on, man. This, I, I, picked, I, just, I literally thought about picking this first. Yeah, you did it's, not. It's worthy for sure. 
No, but okay. Yeah, I'm not, no, I'm not denying not. that it's worthy. But there was you're, you weren't. I, I I wasn't going to, but it was like I really had had thoughts of like. Let me, I, let me put it this way: if you had the number two pick, I would have assumed you would have picked this as a number. Two. I mean, without question, there was no. There was no. Yeah, yeah, it's worthy. I think I just kind of pushed this on to you guys, but for sure. I feel like I might have too. Like I might have. <laughs> I also have gotten feedback that are like. Your two friends, they're definitely from New York, aren't they? And I'm like, yeah. yes, they are. New York. Hey. I'm walking over here. Turned away from it all like a blind man. Sound offense, but it don't work. Keep coming up with love, but it's so slashed and torn. superstar team up ever they stopped collaborated and listened no think about it can you name any other song where artists of this stature collaborated and made a song this good it doesn't exist Scott, you missed it come on what did i miss stop collaborate and stop listen. collaborate and listen uh, okay got it <laughs> why do you have to bring that up though like, but that's it's funny it's different it's different it's funny. As The Sopranos elevates Journey, Vanilla Ice detracts from Queen and David Bowie. <laughs> that, that very well may be, but you have to admit, it was funny. It's I mean, also it was, a big hit, let's face it. Anyway, on to Under Pressure by Queen and the immortal, underrated David Bowie. This is a, a true collaboration, right? It's more yeah, of a Queen he, song, let's be honest. Freddie probably dominates it more than... Freddie is crushing it. Um, Bowie brings, you know, his soul to right, his soulfulness to this. Again, there's sort of a heaviness that underlies, you know, that, that's deeper than the way the song actually sounds. And to me, it's one of the great songs of all time. I fucking love it. I mean, it has one of the catchiest bass lines ever. And then there's the vocals. Bowie's are kind of stately and powerful, but Freddie owns the song with his pure emotion. This guy was on the short list of one of the greatest singers of oh, all he's, time. He's definitely on the short list, yeah, without a doubt. Not to discount what Bowie brought to the song because he's great on it as well. All right. Good pick. 
All right, Keith, you're up again. Double picks. All right. So I may call this pick maybe a reach. Well played. Stay tuned. I actually like the prior one from the prior year. Academy Fight Song. I'm pretty sure they're on the same album now. Signals, Calls, and Marches. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of an EP that's really the length of an LP. One of those. Yeah. Like Jar of Flies. Maybe I'm thinking of the one with the bonus tracks. I think it was an EP and then they added bonus tracks to it. I guess it depends on your definition of EP. Massachusetts fan. This might it. And this might have been my next pick. I don't know. It's a good pick. First true salvo into punk for 1981. Mission in Burma, that's when I reached for my revolver. Punk, hardcore, you know. Yeah, it's definitely cusp of both. Post-punk. Post-punk. Alternative, indie. Any of those genres, fucking my sweet spot anyway, right? Like, and if you meld them all together, you get this, again, sort of early rendition of that. And to me, it's... It's one of the pioneers of, of the sound. And I love the underproduction of it. I love the way the vocals come together at the end. There's a heaviness to it. There's almost a metal feel to it. If you want to make that sort of leap, it's just a great, it's a great song. Great song. It was on my list. I had slightly different timing. I would say, actually, the production, it is cleaner, but it's still a little murky, right? But it's cleaner than, than some other hardcore post-punk bands no but i like the murky i like the murky i like i like the yeah murky. yeah like yeah no totally supposedly live they were like almost like incomprehensibly loud and like messy one of the reasons they originally broke up was the singer lost his hearing yeah they were like out of control noise and the production cleans up and this is a little pulled back for mission of Burma. it's a little understated for them and hitting that sweet spot between the hardcore punk live and production that they did is that's what makes the song so good there were other options for hardcore punk in this very great year for hardcore punk i think this is sort of the leader this would have been i mean again had it come back to me this would have been my first pick out of my next two for sure yeah i thought larry was more likely to pick this because they are a massachusetts band like i said before my favorite song by them is actually academy fight song which is 
more melodic, great song. But that's when I read from my revolver is their best known song, and it's definitely an alt rock anthem, right? It's a great yeah. tune, and they were a really good band. They were short lived, but they well, actually had a four or five years, I think. Right? Well, they actually had a really good comeback years later. Many years. Oh later. yeah, like in the two thousands, right? Yeah, very impressive. Several albums, and that really added to their already impressive legacy. Kind of like what happened with Dinosaur Junior, right? And they were one of the bands documented in Michael Azeroth's excellent book on 80s indie rock bands, Our Band Could Be Your Life. I don't know if you guys know that one. I know the book. I've never actually read it. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. If you're into that alternative scene, Black Flag, Sonic Youth, Mudhoney, those kind of bands, fantastic. Speaking our language, dude. Ain't no more. They got them next, right? Yeah. I think we're going to go unpredictable now. Really? Yeah. But see, it's not fair for you. You can't say you're unpredictable. <laughs> That's for you guys to decide, right? No, no, no. It's not that. It's just that, like, Keith and I will come up with some song, and you'll be like, oh, did you know that, like, their bassist's third cousin was also the drummer for some other band? And we're like, no. No, we didn't know that. As a matter of fact, like, literally nobody on earth knows that other than you. So you can't, you're, you can't be unpredictable. This song is unpredictable, I think. Okay, Maybe I'm wrong, though. I, you know, right. We'll find out. All right, so this next guy is one of the all-time greats. The early 80s certainly wasn't one of his stronger eras. It's amazing that he could talk one of his best songs ever as the last song on what was a relatively weak album by his standards. It's definitely an overlooked song, and it's another song with special meaning to me. It reminds me of my former college roommate and buddy Kevin Zimmerman who turned me on to this song and many other songs by this guy back in the day. Here, brother. That was Every Grain of Sand by the one and only Bob Dylan. This was during his Christian phase, or you might call it his evangelical phase. And it's very much a religious and spirituality-themed song. But you don't have to be religious at all to appreciate such a beautiful song. The piano, the harmonica, the poetry, and one of Dylan's best vocals alone do the trick for me. I don't have a ton to say about the song because I'm not as familiar with it. I think I kind of skipped... Bob's evangelical phase. I did, I have heard it and I did listen to it. Like it definitely came up a couple times as I was going through 81 playlists and listening to it. And I like it. It was not on my radar. Obviously, I know it has different meaning for you. It's a good song. I don't know if I would have put it on my 
list necessarily. I don't even know if I would put it on my like Dylan list, but I'm also not as big of a Dylan fan as you are. I like and respect Dylan. I'm more of like a early Dylan and even a couple of like later, even recent Dylan. Middle Dylan, I'm not so into, if that makes sense. It makes sense. It's a top 10 Dylan song for me. I think it's one of his greatest songs ever. I really do. And I'm with Larry a little bit. I know the song and listen to the song more for 81. I'm sure if I knew that this was a Kev song, I would have had a different sort of <laughs> um, reaction to it. I don't know. It just doesn't hit me the way that it should for it to be drafted like this. I like the song, but it's a little bland to me. Just a little. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't hit. It doesn't hit the way. Uh, it doesn't hit you like the way some other Dylan songs hit me. Yeah, exactly. But, well, but, it's bad. But also, for me, it does, but I can't but, make it hit you guys. I'm sure we're both, I'm sure I am, and I'm guessing for you too, Larry, that I'm just biased against 1981 Bob Dylan. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It just doesn't. Yeah, to me, this is a sparkling gem in an underwhelming era, personally. That's my And sometimes it's just harder to recognize that, you know, the gem when the era isn't. I have a personal connection to it. You guys don't, and I'm much more familiar with it than you guys. So that's part of it as well. All right, so. No, that part, that part's not, doesn't matter. It's just. Absolutely it matters. Nope. It's just not as good as song. It's just, you just have a person. <laughs> you'll see. A year or two from now, and you'll be like, yep, <laughs> you were right. Remember this moment. I am going to remember this moment now, for sure. Next pick. Before we head to the next song, actually, I did mention earlier that there were several bands from the 60s that I felt had draftable songs. I don't think we're going to draft them. So I'll name the band, and you guys can name the song. The Rolling Stones. I referenced that song when I was talking about videos. You did, but that's not the song I'm thinking about. No, I'm sure it's not. What song am I thinking about? Uh, Waiting on a Friend is my song. Yep. Yeah. The Kinks, Better Things. Oh, okay. Great tune. The Who. Um... You better you bet. You better you bet. Better you bet. The Moody Blues. Mm. Story. Yes. No, no, the boys. The boys. Yeah. Is this story 70s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Early 70s. I think he was thinking of the boys. He just said story. Yeah. yeah, and then if we're going to really push it, we could say an iteration of a prior band, Jefferson Starship, Find Your Way Back, or Stranger. I think uh, all great songs. All from way back bands. We're not going to draft them, but worth a mention. No. There was no. a minor comeback from some of these bands in 1981. Yeah, we're definitely not going to draft those songs. Yeah, our friend was in the closest to the I actually thought you might. I thought Scott might draft it. It's on my board. One of the greatest cameos on any Rolling Stones song. Who played sax on that? Jazz, Larry. Jazz. I don't know. Sonny Rollins. Oh, my God, I was about to say Sonny Rollins. And to me, it's one of the greatest sax solos in rock, but only the second greatest sax solo of 1981. And the greatest sax solo was also a cameo by who? Keith, come on, I told you the song. (laughs) (laughs) Junior Walker on Urgent by Farna. Come on, that's a killer. (laughs) Sex bomb baby, sex bomb baby. If you could play Sex Bomb Baby, I could bombard you with trivia you guys don't care about. <laughs> I don't know if we don't care about it. It's just we suck at and it. And they are. Yeah. Sorry for the tangent. Back on point. 
Larry Hook. Point. I'm pretty sure this next song has no sax. Matter of fact, not only does it have no sax, but I can play the entire song and still get under Scott's draconian rules for how long we're allowed to play a song. Wow. Minor Threat. Yeah. Can you play both Minor Threat songs? I could play nine Minor Threat songs and it would only take like eight minutes. <laughs> yeah. Make the Ramones look like yes. Please, please <laughs> go right into Straight Edge. All right. You don't have to convince me. That's fucking hardcore. That's fucking awesome. Man. So that was Minor Threat. The first song was Minor Threat, and then the second song was Straight Edge. And they are Straight Edge. Yep. You want to talk a little bit about Straight Edge? What it meant? Straight Edge meant that they were Straight Edge. While you would think that hardcore... A band that plays like that, you think they're really... Plans that plays like that, you would think that they're Dex Drugs, Rock and Roll, but they're... Straight edge, man. They ain't about that life. They ain't about that uh, life. In no. any in any way. But they were fucking heavy as shit. They were badass, totally. And another song called Out of Step where the lyrics were, I might be getting like the, the sequencing wrong, but it's like, don't smoke, don't drink, don't fuck, but at least I can fucking think. Like, it's just, it's great. At least that was the image. At least that was... Yeah, I mean, who knows if it was really true. I think it was, to be honest. I, I mean, supposedly it was, but who knows. These guys, to me, were just... a killer hardcore band like okay so we joke sometimes about songs and punk songs and hell on there so the first song that i played minor threat was on minor threats first ep which had eight songs and it was nine minutes and 20 seconds long they have an album complete discography that's one cd 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they then took their first two EPs and put them into a compilation, and it wasn't 20 minutes long. It was like 19 minutes and something, right? But, I mean, listen, the guitars are fucking killer. It's hardcore as hell. You can definitely hear other hardcore bands, how they picked up on that and expanded it. To me, it's great. That's what I love about punk and hardcore, right? There's no fucking around about what they're about, right? They're just about fast. They're you know, in, they're out. They're hard. Getting out. That's it. It's great. And Ian McKay is one of the great punk screamers, for sure. I've always been more of a Fugazi guy. Fugazi will come back in the, in the later. Yeah, I mean, I've just found them a little bit more memorable. Their songs are more sophisticated. They still kicked ass. Minor Threat was more one speed. You know what you're getting. To me, limited dosages. But, yeah, kicked yeah, ass, for sure. That's why these two songs together are, again, right? It's not listening to 20 songs <laughs> in a row. Yeah. These are their best songs. They're the most succinct. They're fucking perfect, heavy, hardcore shit. Yeah, it's a short burst of energy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there's a reason why, there's a reason why their entire discography is one CD. It's only so much you can take. And the reason I think they were true to their credo is because of what they did in Fugazi, where they wouldn't charge more than like, you know, $8 a ticket. They could have sold out and made a lot more money. They, right. they were they really don't need a very principled band, and I assume that started with Minor Threat. They didn't need the drug money. No. no. There was a scene, like, a lot of the great hardcore bands all were from the same area. They were all from Washington, D.C., and there's apparently just like, um... Bad Brains. Like Bad Brains. Bad yeah. Brains, Rise of Spring. More Washington, D.C. hardcore coming up, I'm sure, with Bad Brains and Fugazi at the very Absolutely. Point. Oh, of course. I mean, come on. You know that Keith and I are picking some of those songs. Yeah. All right. So my next song I'm picking for three reasons. I do have a little bit of hesitation, maybe a little trepidation. You know, maybe you guys won't like it, but I have three really good reasons. One, it's an offshoot of a band that we've talked about before and had a song in 1980. It's Yoko. I know. It's not Yoko. Second, it's one of the most sampled songs of recent vintage possibly of all time and three and this was the clincher i saw on instagram today that 43 years ago today the song was released it's sad that i'm not picking rick james because of all the Chappelle riffs we could go into yeah it seems like someone should pick rick james but the song you are picking is tom tom club genius of love you, you, you know what? Uh, you're going to edit that out because you just spoiled it for everybody. You asked me to guess it. What are you talking about? You're supposed to guess it just amongst us three, not spoil it for our... <laughs> our no, that's a great, it's a great. It's a great pick. It's a great pick. It's a great call. I'm disappointed in myself. It's a very Larry pick. Yeah, well, it's a very Larry pick. I've got my lanes. Sometimes I vary, but not so that.
All right, so is Scott spoiled for everybody. That was Juice of Love by Tom Tom Club. Tom Tom Club is an offshoot of the Talking Heads. So this is Chris France and Tina Weymouth. And they would sometimes play this during Talking Heads concerts, most notably during Stop Making Sense. And and it was used as a, as a way for David Byrne to get off stage and get into the big suit for my girlfriend. So, But that's not why I'm playing it, not because of the big suit. I'm playing it because, first of all, it's a cool-ass song. And... That rhythm, like that's, to me, it's very Talking Heads, that sort of polyrhythmic, but yet moving into new wave, slightly disco, but kind of a little beyond that, that syncopated beat. There's a reason why it's sampled so many times. It was sampled most famously by Mariah Carey in Fantasy, but then another artist last year, Lasso, for her song, Big Energy, depending on who you believe, she either sampled Fantasy or she sampled Tom Tom Club. It sounds kind of the same. Ironically, again, as I was driving Jamie home this evening, I played this song for her and I'm like, hey, do you know, like, do you recognize this, this riff? And she's like, yeah, it sounds familiar. What is it? And I'm like, okay. And then I played Big Energy. She's like, oh yeah, no, I know this song. And then she quoted one of the lyrics, which she quoted wrong. She's like, I'm saying oh, yeah, like, cocaine. No, not exactly. She's like, yeah, they talk about big pick energy. And I'm like, no, that's not what they said. (laughs) (laughs) Which made me feel slightly better. Yeah, yeah. We'll go with that. not pick, just to be clear. Yeah. Genius of love. Classic song. Classic song, great lyrics. Yeah, deeper than the surface. Deeper than the surface, totally. Lyrics are all about famous African-American musicians. Very deep song. Also... Probably most people don't know that it's essentially an offshoot Talking Head song. You talk about offshoot songs, right? This has got to be one of the biggest ones, right? An offshoot band from a major band. This yeah. has got to be up there. I'd have to think about it further. But like you said, it's very new wave, but kind of funk. And there's that world music influence. Basically, so, like, all the influences that the Talking Heads had without David Byrne. Without David Byrne, yeah. Which, you know, some people might say is a plus. Yes, that guy, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm very happy that I was able to pick it. I'm happier that you guys like it because I think it's a, it's definitely underrated. All right. So I'm up next, right? Yep. There's one song I feel like we have to pick, and I'm going right. there. So I'm going to quote a reader comment on the Best Ever Albums website about this next song. A perfect song. Angry, scary, loaded with emotion, and the best three-second drum solo ever, end quote. That, that sums it up. <laughs> the best, the best, the the best, best drum three-second drum solo? That's all the, it is. The best drum solo any of us could actually do. Yeah, and one of the greatest reaction videos ever. And one of the most viral reaction videos ever. Yeah.
That was In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. A lot of people today don't remember just how big Phil Collins was in the 80s, both as a solo artist and with Genesis, who were huge. Over time, he became decidedly uncool, but this song was cutting-edge stuff back in 1981. It was so atmospheric and powerful, and it's endured over the years with appearances in movies like The Hangover, and like we mentioned before, even in viral reaction videos. In the Air Tonight is not only Phil Collins' signature song, but it's one of the signature songs of the 1980s. And that drum fill is probably the most famous, most air drum few seconds in rock history. And then there's the lyrics about his failing marriage. Lines like, if you told me you were drowning, I would not lend a hand or beyond dark. And then there's the mythology behind the song that Phil allegedly witnessed such an act as someone watching someone else drown, but he was too far away to help out, which makes the song even more of a classic. Pure nonsense, but I love made-up stories and myths like that. This song had to be included for 1981. You missed the best part of the mythology, too, which was that he then sent tickets to one of his concerts to the guy who drowned somebody or whatever it was and then waited until right after the climax of in the air tonight to have him arrested i mean that was the mythology man come on yeah, 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 yeah. totally believable yeah and then stan wrote about it to eminem too <laughs> i'm glad you picked it because i feel like it does get overlooked this is where like if you remember the very beginning i said there's a lot of songs that i feel like should get picked or that we're gonna pick that i just don't have like religion on like i don't feel super into and this was one of them like yeah i know like i know it's a good song i know that it's one of the bigger songs of 1981 phil collins as you said was huge in the 80s both as a i would say as a solo act and as a, like a, a new genesis because 80s genesis did not resemble 70s genesis no it's like your favorite songs and the songs that you feel have to represent certain years in certain eras as well so yeah. it's that juggling act right yeah, totally and we do we do that. We will sometimes pick songs that maybe you don't feel like really strongly about, but we feel like we should because they represent the air. And this definitely does. We have maybe the two most famous drum solos or drum fills in rock history in this episode if you add Tom Sawyer. And two very different. I can do this drum solo. I don't think I can. No, definitely you know, not. You can do Neil Peart now. Uh, yeah. And Phil is a great drummer, but also this is a great vocal. He does get overlooked as a singer, I think. Yeah, it's more, it's more sort of a haunting song, right? It's, it's more like the lyrics. It's, it's more a story. Again, this is a storytelling song and it's, yeah. it's meant to, to draw you in. The drum fill sort of just is part of the dramatics of the song, which again is, a, is effective. And then Mike Tyson comes in and changes all. That's true. That the is, song. that is true. There is that connection again, like you said, that elevates it. You can't undo it there forever. Most famous drum solo in rock history, incredibly passionate vocals, a very unique, very 80s sound. It's a classic, man. It is a yeah. classic. All right, what do you got next? This was definitely one of my next picks. I was going to say, I thought this would be a Scott pick. This will be a kind of a continuation of our conversation in 
that's Ratchild by Iron Maiden. Again, I, t- I talked about, you know, Maiden in, in 80 and my sort of affection for the Diano years. And, uh, you know, he gets, he's underrated in the range that he had. Songs like Remember Tomorrow, Charlotte the Hollywood at times. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's just so different for me, you know, Maiden, the first two albums versus the Dickinson years. And I just love what he brought to the table. And I love the sound of, of Maiden from his era because it's just so, it's just so different. It's hard to say that they were one thing because they just were so different from 81 to, to 80, 80. When was number 80, 82 or 83? 82. Peace of Mind was 83. Yeah. Power of was 84. Alive After Death, 85. Yeah, that, that was it's hard to impeach that run that they had after, but there's just something special, something that just unique and different about these first two albums. And Wrathchild is just a perfect encapsulation of what they were. Yeah, like you said, it had the rawness of punk, but with great musicianship. Vocals are kind of Ian Gillenish a little bit to me at times. Absolutely. That's a good call. Definitely. And I was going to play The Eyes of March, which is the first song. It's an instrumental that does that wailing, harmonized guitar thing they do so well into Wrathchild with that freaking bass, Steve Harris, man. And the lyrics of this song, right? My mother was a queen, my dad I've never seen. I was never meant to be. Now I spend my time looking all around for a man that's nowhere to be found. That's some deep lyrics. It's certainly for Iron Maiden and for that scene, for sure. Yeah, it's classic early Maiden. Got the energy of punk while being heavier and more sophisticated musically than the punk bands. Right. Um, God damn it. I fucking hate the last pick. Now we could talk about the guitarist from Magazine, who we talked about before. Yeah. Remember we mentioned that? John McGee, full circle, baby. I like it. And you know who was in this band? Kind of briefly, but he was actually a full-fledged member of this band. You know who I'm talking about? No. Robert Smith. Seriously? Mm-hmm. I did not know that. Great pick, man. Sushi? Susie. Susie. Yeah, it's just spelled weird. Let's eat some sushi together. How did Scott pronounce it one time? It was like Suaxi? I've never said it because I always just read it. But yeah, Susie. 
Susan. Sushi and the bad cheese. There's an intense right there. That's intense. It's woman power. It's just great. Just a great song from that era. Again, they had been around, right? They had already paid their dues by that time. They just brought it to sick intensity. Scott was talking about this, but you can't talk about it without talking about the guitar, right? So the guitarist was John McGough, who was part of Magazine, a band that we talked about in our 70s podcasts. Magazine's a punk band from the late 70s. Unbelievably influential guitarist. Multiple bands and guitarists have labeled him as a major influence. There's a great reference to him saying he was known for inventive arpeggios, string harmonics, use of flanger. And then I love this last part, occasional disregard for conventional scales. You get that in Spellbound. It's edgy, it's jangly. Chaos, right? Chaotic. Yeah, it's so good. Also, a little bit of a shout out, the show on Netflix, Stranger Things takes place in the 80s and Spellbound closed out the last season of it and it fit because it was chaotic, climactic and it, it fit so well and I have to give their producers credit, they are great at picking 80s songs to fit the mood. So. And they've blown up songs they have of their up. show, like Kate Bush and Metallica, we've talked about that yep. and this is kind of goth but it's also post-punk, it's moody yet it's rocking and the drum sound is very cool as well. We already talked about the guitar sound. Susie as well, very compelling singer. Yeah. And Steven Severin on bass anchors the whole thing. So they're kind of an overlooked band. They had a lot of good stuff. They were definitely one of the better post-punk bands. And this is probably, if not their best known song or best song, it's up there. All right, my last pick. This song has some of the greatest riffs and screams of all time. One break. Coming up! by Van Halen from their awesome Fair Warning album. For my money, their best album after their near-flawless first album, maybe even including their first album. What I love about Fair Warning is how dark it is. It's not a carefree party album, though many of its songs are fun and all of them kick ass. Just listen to Eddie Van Halen's meaty guitar tone on those classic intro riffs, and Diamond Dave could scream with the best of them. The chorus is catchy, the song powerfully chugs along. Eddie adds a short but sweet guitar solo. It has that amusing ad lib I quoted earlier, which was another Van Halen trademark. 
and it's just nothing fancy. Totally classic Van Halen heavy rocker. And there are several other fair warning songs that are worthy of inclusion in our honorable mentions playlist. Open a Mean Street for sure, but also hear about it later, and it should have been a big hit, so this is love. This is another one I was a little surprised we hadn't picked it earlier. I kind of thought all three of us probably had it on our list. I don't know if I can say Fair Warning is better than Van Halen 1. Van Halen 1 is so fucking good. Fair Warning is so fucking good, too. The close second. Yeah, they're, they're different, right? They have a little different feeling. I think it's clearly their second best album. Everyone knows the debut is amazing and an A-plus album. I feel like Fair Warning is as well, but not nearly as many people are aware of that. That's fair. Changes. It's awesome and classic Van Halen. It's amongst their best. And between Fair Warning and Van Halen 1, 1 is, is more classic, right? And Fair Warning is just a little darker, more of the underbelly of Van Halen, which is awesome. So I don't, yeah. I don't care. And we've talked before about our 1987 high school party playlist. We also had a college playlist dubbed The Vodka Tape. And Unchained was the first song on it and kicked off. Oh my God. The, many a fun the, night. The raucousness that it kicked off was pretty epic. It's called the vodka tape? The vodka tape because we listened to it and drank vodka. I mean, I kind of, <laughs> kind of gathered that from the name, but. Well, they did. Yeah. Keith is more of a beer guy. It was me and our buddy Cass. Keith has moved up the alcohol spectrum from vodka. I don't drink vodka anymore, thank God. Vodka, I don't know. I'm anti-vodka. Vodka's got no character to me. It's all about the vibe. My last pick, and the last pick of the 1981 Music Nerds Unite draft, is a band I've talked about quite a lot, but have been unable to draft them, and didn't think I was going to have a shot until Scott pulled out the... Well, the song came out in 1980 on the album, but it wasn't released as a single until 81, so have at it. One of my fave bands from this era, some great songs. I regret not picking them in 80 for another one of their amazing songs, but if there's a way that we're going to close out 81, I think this is, this is a good one. And this is the band we referenced when we were talking about the Stranglers, where they're a so-called punk band who are really more than punk and also much bigger in the UK than the US. So that was That's Entertainment by The Jam. Punk band started in the same scene as the Sex Pistols, Clash, Buzzcocks. As Scott said, kind of like the Stranglers, morphed into not quite a new wave band, but no longer a punk band. This is probably one of their two most lyrical and evocative songs. I mean, the lyrics are phenomenal. The clip that we played 
two lovers kissing amongst the scream of midnight, two lovers missing the tranquility of solitude. I mean, that's fucking poetry right there, dude. That's, that's phenomenal. I have always loved this song, or at least I've always loved the song since I've learned about it, since I definitely don't remember it coming out in 1981. I think it's a great way to close this out. It kind of, to me, encapsulates where 1981 was going, right? So you have a punk band that is moving, evolving, changing with the times to become a much more polished, positive version of what they were before, but still with that little bit of acerbic bite, right? If you listen to the lyrics, this is definitely a punk attitude in early 80s United Kingdom, which was not the most cheery place to be. So good way for us to close this out. Definitely a clashy song. Yeah. And you can definitely hear the influences in the church, XTC, and, and other, like, Good call. It's sort of a transitional type of song, right, from a genre standpoint, in terms of how it leads into sort of British, you know, I, I don't even, it's hard to call it punk, right? But it's like post punk. Like, At this point, it's definitely not punk anymore. Definitely right? not punk. Yeah, that's what I find so evocative about a lot of these bands as they morph and become something different is that they started out as punk and they still retain some of that punk ethos. They become something big, right? They become, become something bigger. I mean, punk at its core is just about breaking rules, playing fast, loud, quickly, and getting out. And then to see some of these bands actually learn how to play and move into their musicianship expand their lyrics. I love seeing bands evolve, and to me, this is a great example of that. Really, the best thing about punk is no rules, right? Yeah. Some people think of punk as loud, fast, amateurish, and really, the best part of punk is that no rules yeah. ethos. And the Jam are one of many bands that are big in the UK, but they're largely unknown in the US. They had 18 top 40 UK hits and zero in the US, so that yeah, shows... Just- that's Which is just appalling to me because I think they are so good. I don't understand why. Well, their lyrics are very British. Their sound they is are. kind of British. But this is, to me, an acoustic soul song. It's not a yeah. punk song. But to me, you can hear future Britpop bands in it. The words out of my mouth, it very much sounds like right? a punk song. Yep. It has those airy harmonies and excellent lyrics, like you pointed out. Another evocative example, beating ducks in the park. And wishing you were far away. I mean, just poetry, man. And It is. So this is just an affecting song with a timeless pop sound. And although they're typically labeled as a punk band, as we've mentioned, this song shows that the jam were much more than just a punk band, right? And if nothing else, you should at least try out a greatest hits album because they were a tremendous singles band. I mean, I think I mentioned this once before when we were talking about the jam, but like, when we get to the 90s and really start getting into Britpop, I'm definitely going to be referencing back to the jam. There's one song in particular that I feel is like the spiritual successor to this song. Yeah, you have the kinks and the who through the jam into Britpop almost, yep. right? Yep. All right, great pick, All man. All right, and take us home. I'm going to bookend this episode with nice. through. I'm going to channel my inner Kurt Cobain, and I'm going to go with another one of their influences. From 1981. The song is Youth of America by the Wipers. I think it's a 10-minute song. It's epic. It's punk. There's a lot going on in the song. And Kurt was a fanboy as much as he was a fanboy of our opener. So the soundtrack is going to start at 8.10 and it's going to take us home.
And the lead guy was a singer, guitar savant who probably should have been more well-received and done more, but is what it is. He's got this as his legacy. Greg Sage. Yep. That's it for this episode. Hope everyone enjoyed this song draft of the best songs of 1981. Have a good night, everyone. Night, everyone. Awesome.